This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the Redbox podcast i'm matt Jolly, being the best of my times radio show which has been on air for three years today it's extraordinary still not been taken off air quite remarkable you can listen live monday to friday 10 till 1 uh, but always catch the best bits here on the podcast and today's podcast as well as being the best of the times radio show is actually a bit of the best of the podcast as well uh, we're going back to an interview that i did with margaret mcdonough back in 2017 uh, she was the general secretary uh, first woman to lead the uh, Labour Party's General Secretary. Uh, she played a key role in the election victories to New Labour in 1997 and 2001. She was one of the key players I interviewed about that campaign in uh, 2017. But at the weekend, we got the news that she died at the age of 61. So we thought we'd revisit the interview because uh, she's one of those people who actually didn't really seek the limelight after leaving the party. Uh, and she's got some really, well, just great stories about what all that was like. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, let's kick off with a look at the news for today's column. The Columnists on Times Radio. And normally on a Thursday, we're joined by Manveen Rana, but we've lost her. We don't know where she is. We have got Matthew Paris here. Morning, Matthew. Morning. I'm playing the part of Manveen Rana. It's Patrick Maguire. Good morning. How are you? I'm delighted to be here, of course. Well, happy birthday. Happy birthday to us. Happy, but yeah, happy birthday. Times Radio family. Of which you are a key part, Patrick. Thank you very much. I'm like the, uh, you know, somebody's nephew, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should dive straight in then to the big sort of political news of the morning and this ruling from the Court of Appeal, uh, ruling that the government's plan to deport asylum seekers to Iran for processing is unlawful. This is what the, uh, the judge had to say. The deficiencies in the asylum system in Rwanda are such that there are substantial grounds for believing that there is a real risk that persons sent to Rwanda will be returned to their home countries where they faced persecution or other inhumane treatment when, in fact, they have a good claim for asylum. In that sense, Rwanda is not a safe third country. So that was uh, the warning from uh, the court this morning that uh, they found that uh, Rwanda was not a safe country. In response, a spokesman for the Rwandan government uh, says we do t- take issue with the ruling that Rwanda is not a safe country for asylum seekers and refugees. Rwanda is one of the safest countries in the world. Um, Matthew, I have to say I was a bit surprised, I mean, because I don't really understand the, the legal process. Given that the High Court had already, already ruled that it was lawful, nothing's changed in the safety of Rwanda since that ruling. 
It's interesting the Court of Appeal have decided actually Rwanda is not a safe country and it's hard to know what the British government could now do to make it safer. It's, I think, worrying for the, the British government. I'm a supporter of the Rwanda policy, but I, I think what's new is, is that focus has been placed on Rwanda itself as a country. And if a court says it's not safe, what can the government do about it? Well, this will go to the Supreme Court later this year. It delays the implementation of the whole policy. But I, I can't quite see the government legislating to say that they and only they and no court can say whether a country is safe. You'd probably have to change the wording of the, the European Convention, for instance, on, on human rights, uh, either to remove the word safe, which would be difficult... Or else all, all, all you've got left, I think, is to find another country. That's an interesting, that's an interesting point, I suppose, isn't it, Patrick? And the longer this goes on for, more delays, or go to the Supreme Court, even though the court has said that it will, you know, it will try to speed that up. I mean, originally, Swell Barman thought the first plane to Rwanda would take off this summer. Uh, yeah, and when increasingly it looks like we'll be lucky to see, or rather Swell Bradman will be lucky to see a plane take off this side of the election. And where does this leave... Swala Bradman and the Conservative Party, well, I think it leaves them with one choice. If the Supreme Court makes the decision uh, one would expect after today's ruling, which is that uh, they will, too, uh, rule it unlawful, um, it leaves the Conservative Party with no choice, not that it was unlikely anyway, that they'll put withdrawal from the European Convention of Human Rights in their manifesto and uh, that'll set one of the contours for the next election, I think. But but putting that, that's, that's like a plan to keep saying you're going to do something, ultimately it's not going to stop the boats, uh, which was one of Rishi Sunak's pledges at the beginning of the year. Well, no, exactly. But who, who is going to, who is going to stop the boats? Yeah. Who, does anyone have a plan to stop the boats? Labour Party don't have a plan to stop the boats. The Conservative Party, the, this government has, you know, had the Rwanda plan to stop the boats now, but that wasn't clear that was going to stop the boats anyway. You know, we heard about the cost over the weekend. Obviously, it's all dwarfed by the sort of 11 billion they're going to spend on hotels over the lifetime of this parliament. But other than that, you know, what is anyone's plan to stop the boats? It, it genuinely seems like... It's not to say we shouldn't care or sh- governments shouldn't come up with plans to stop people arriving illegally, in which case, why do we have borders at all? And what's the point of yeah. sort of sovereignty? But, I mean, who is... Go- is this a genuinely intractable problem? Yeah. Short of the Lee Anderson school of, you know, sending Royal Navy frigates to mine the channel or whatever it is he yeah. said most recently... Um, Matthew, it was interesting. Yesterday we had a team outing. We went down to uh, Parliament, we had lunch, and then we went to the Commons. I'll be honest, the debate there wasn't very good. We went to the House of Lords, where they were debating exactly this, the illegal migration bill. And what really struck us was Ken Clark made a speech defending the Rwanda policy. And lots of people think that Ken Clark is on the left. Mm. You know, he doesn't. he's not normally shy of criticising uh, the, <laughs> the Conservative government. And he basically said, something. this is a, at least an idea. And he said he'd sat through hours of debate... And lots of opposition, but nobody is putting forward an alternative idea. That's the problem, I think, for those who oppose the Rwanda plan. What they say is we must make uh, safe and legal and easy routes available for people to come to Britain. Then they won't go on the boats. You know, when you say to uh, to, to, to uh, those who protest against the Rwanda plan, well, what's your plan? They say we must make it safe and easy, then we people won't go on the boats. The trouble is, the last thing the British government or any European government want to do is to make it safe and easy uh, for potentially millions of people yeah. all over the world to come here. So actually, both sides are now up a creek. 
That's a perfect way of putting it, both sides of the Labour, explain what the, the thinking in the Labour Party on this, Patrick. Is it just a focus on the competence of delivery of Rishi Sunak's pledges? Exactly. The thinking in the Labour Party, insofar as they're thinking about this, is that they hope and think the Conservatives will be unable to fulfil that pledge yeah. so they can talk about that until the next election. But at some point, as Matthew says, the Labour Party is going to have to confront that it too is not going to want to be a government that throws open borders no matter what Keir Starmer said in 2020 or earlier. Um, and right now, you know, competence is there, is their dividing line. They say, you know, we would clear asylum backlogs more efficiently so this problem wouldn't arise. But I don't, I don't think there's anyone that still believes that's the solution to anything. And if anything, if, if you post, if you're... you're... Uh, application is going to be processed more quickly. They might make you more enthusiastic about coming across in a boat. Quite possibly, yeah. Because if you think you've got a, you know, the prospect of being in a, de- in a detention centre for months might put you or a barge or whatever might put you off. But uh, a nice, efficient labour process might might make it more. Appealing. Yeah, look, and a, and a perennial complaint about Yvette Cooper and indeed Nick Thomas Simmons, her predecessor as shadow Home Secretary before, you hear from Labour people is well, they've they've not really laid a glove on the government on small boats. Well, I think the fact that the government can't solve this problem at all uh, is a... And the issue of immigration is even more fraught for the Labour Party for cultural reasons or whatever uh, and, you know, their historical vulnerabilities than it is the Conservative Party. You know, it's no wonder they haven't laid a glove in... in Yeah, Yeah, because it's especially in what we loosely call the red wall seats that the Labour Party, their strategy must be to get these back again from the Tories, and it's in the red wall seats where you won't get a lot of sympathy for boat people. And I suppose there's two things. There's stop the boats, which is an immediate problem, and everyone would prefer not to see people taking, you know, putting their lives in mm. a dinghy and coming across. But ultimately, the, the, the driving force behind it is the numbers of people who are in the UK and are coming to the UK, and that's where the public concern lies. And so, you know, safe and legal routes or, you know, the, 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 the stopping the boats is a small part of the bigger question. Yes, but I think there is genuine public concern, whether justified or not, about about landings on yeah. our beaches, yeah. so to speak. You're right, the numbers are, are tiny by comparison with overall yeah. immigration, but the the look of it all is, yeah. is it really, I think, angers people. Well, we'll keep, uh, keep across it, because obviously you've now got Rwanda insisting they are a safe country. Rishi Sunak and Swella Barbara have to respond to it at some point, and it will all end up in... Uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, let's talk about um, one of the other big political stories of the day, closer to home. Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg were among those heavily criticised by a Commons uh, Committee uh, for waging a campaign to undermine the committee's investigation into Boris Johnson. So as the Privileges Committee, they were looking at whether or not he misled Parliament over breaches in Number 10. Uh, they've accused uh, Boris Johnson and allies of vociferous attacks on the committee. Just, it's just nice we can just keep talking about Boris Johnson, Matthew. Yes, yes, I know. He, he'll be sitting back somewhere, wherever he is. Now, just pleased to hear his name again uh, <laughs> on, on, on the radio. I, I heard your interview with, with Michael Fabricant. Um, I, I think where the committee have made a mistake is the use of the word campaign. It's irrelevant whether there's a campaign or not. I know Michael Fabricant. He's, he's an old friend and he's a, lone, he's a lone wolf. He's not a team player. He, he's not part of a campaign. It, it's what they said rather than whether what they said was part of a campaign. And, and what, what they said, what Jacob Rees-Mogg said, what Nadine Doris and, and Michael Fabricant have said is completely out of order. You can criticise a committee for not having uncovered the evidence they should have. You could criticise them for having reached the wrong conclusions on the evidence uh, that they had. 
But what you cannot do is impugn the integrity of the committee itself or members of the committee. And so if you suggest that they were prejudiced, that they were involved in a, in a witch hunt, well, in a court of law, that would be contempt of court. And this is contempt of a select committee. And I, I think there's no way out of that. And there's a long list. So in, in, in all, uh, there's Nadine Doris, uh, Lord Zach Goldsmith, Mark Jenkinson as a Tory MP, Michael Fabricant, uh, Brendan Clark-Smith is another MP, uh, Nadine Doris again, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Andrea Jenkins, Jacob Rees-Mogg again, Pretty Patel, and then two more uh, Nadine Dorises. I'm torn because I agree with everything Matthew just said about the principles at stake here. But at the same time, what has the committee ruled this morning? Well, they've effectively ruled that the people who still support Boris Johnson, with the possible exception of Zach Goldsmith, who's a serving government minister, it's effectively ruled that Boris Johnson's remaining supporters aren't serious people. And we knew that already. And there is a big part of me that thinks, if... <laughs> and I, I, I completely agree with Matthew on the principle, but there is another part of me that thinks, if you can't cope with Michael Fabricant and Andrea Jenkins and Brendan Clark-Smith and Mark Jenkinson, I prom promise I'm not just making these names up now... <laughs> Using words like kangaroo court and witch hunt. Yes, I know this, the principle is important. I just sort of... There is a large part of me that thinks, surely that is a small price to pay for a process, actually, that wasn't undermined in the end. It was su successful. It has, ha it has... Boris Johnson is no longer in political life in this country. It has ended Boris Johnson's political career. I get, I get that it's important and a precedent has to be set. There's another part of me that thinks, can we all just get a grip and ignore these people? Well, I take, take your point. There, uh, though Jacob Rees-Mogg is a fairly serious intellect, uh, mm. uh, I, I, I would say. But there is a bit of a precedent. If, if members of parliament, when select committees report on whatever, start attacking the integrity of the select committee, it's not a good road to go down, and, and, and perhaps somebody should say so. And actually, we have seen when... Uh, well, Andrew Bridges is a prime example. When he was investigated by the Commons Standards, Standards Commissioner... Commissioner uh, he was found to breach lobbying rules, but actually then had his punishment increased because he sort of made threats and uh, things towards the Commission. So the, the idea that MPs should uphold the process, I suppose, is quite yeah. important. But maybe the, maybe the mistake they've made is the point that you were making, Matthew. This, this report is called Coordinated Campaign of Interference in mm. the Work of the Privileges Committee. And actually, it's just a load of... Yes, no Mark MPs tweeting. Well, and then the coordinated campaign is a pro forma campaign sent by yeah. Peter Crudis's Conservative Democratic Organisation, which is effectively just a website and a Twitter account that sent six hundred emails, pro forma emails, which I appreciate is annoying. And as you both say, if that's done on a, a larger scale on a issue of greater national consequence, not that Boris Johnson's future isn't of national consequence to a certain extent, but I just there is a. You know, I to a certain extent, I just think giving Brendan Clark Smith and Andrew Jenkins <laughs> any airtime uh, at all, even to condemn yeah. them, is a slippery slope. I mean, my, Michael Fabricant will be over the moon that he had five <laughs> minutes with you on that's, Times that's, Radio. That's Sir Michael Fabricant. Well, he came, oh, right. he, came on, he came on the radio and said he loved me dearly, and I, yes. I fear my <laughs> reputation might never recover. Right, now let's talk about... Angela Rayner! And... Lisa... Nandy! So, if you're listening to PMQ's Unpacked yesterday, you would have heard that we had uh, the X Factor voiceover man, uh, Peter Dixon, who just happened to voice up uh, Angela Rayner and Lisa Nandy for us. And it turns out they're on the move, Patrick. Uh, well, yes. Keir Starmer is preparing to demote Lisa Nandy for the second time in two years to make space for Angela Rayner to become Shadow Levelling Up Secretary. Now, 
that's more significant than it sounds. Um, not to talk down my own exclusive <laughs> in this morning's, this morning's times. Um, Angela Rayner currently uh, has a 24-word job title at the heart of which is Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Cabinet Office Minister. Now, that means, in theory, in a Labour government, she would be at the heart of the machinery of government, cross coordinating across Whitehall, driving policy implementation. The problem with that is Keir Starmer doesn't trust Angela Rayner, Angela Rayner doesn't trust Keir Starmer. Is that an effective use of Angela Rayner's talents? I think friends of Angela Rayner and her detractors both say no. But what do you do with your elected deputy, who has a direct mandate from the membership? Well, and the Labour leadership has concluded that they want to do what Tony Blair did with John Prescott, not that it ended terribly well, give Angela Rayner a massive domestic department yeah. uh, to occupy her and play to her strengths. But that means making space at the top of the Labour Party and it means Lisa Nandy, who ha- has her own um, tensions with the Labour leadership, is um, sadly destined for less, uh, less suspicious uh, posts. What do you make of this as a, as a long-time viewer of these things, Matthew? Well, bogging someone down is a very good way of... Uh, I mean, <laughs> my, Michael Gove has got a bit bogged down. I don't think that was intentional, but but he he has. So I, I, I see the logic of what Patrick is suggesting. More than that, I think I, I would have to confess that though I am called a political columnist, were you to present me with an exam series of questions as to who occupies which post... <laughs> Um, I, in in the shadow cabinet, I I would not know. So um, I listen with 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 respect, with awe to, to oh, what thank you. Thank what you. Patrick says. But I also say to myself, and it's an uncomfortable thing. These are things we're going to have to know about quite soon <laughs> and start talking about quite soon. I mean, I suppose there are two things, aren't there, Patrick? One is uh, lots of people don't know who any of the late. Well, we had it in our focus group this week. We asked, you know, can you name anyone on the shadow cabinet? I think Angela Rayner came up. Maybe Lisa Nandy. But, but, yeah, but, have we got the clip? I mean, in fact, we could hear. This is the this is the focus group from this week uh, when asked, "Can you name anyone in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet?" Lisa Nandy, Angela Rayner. Any other names? Uh, the, um... Who was that? Got that other woman that went recently? I can't remember what her name was. The other one, yeah. Oh, I know you on the back as well. Any other names? Labour shadow shadow cabinet. No. I don't know the answer, Patrick. Can you, the woman who went recently? Unless they're talking about Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was sacked in <laughs> June 2020. I mean, I mean, all credit to them if, it, if uh, it is what they're talking about. But there are two things. Does it, A, does it matter? Probably not. If the next election is going to be Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, Angela Rayner on a battle bus. Competence and being able to deliver is going to be much more important, uh, particularly if, you know, Keir Starmer wants to hit the ground running. Yeah, I think exactly. What will reassure... Um, the aides to Keir Starmer who listen religiously to this podcast about that focus group is the fact that none of the people in that focus group presumably said Ed Miliband, which is the thing that preoccupies some uh, of the people close to Keir Starmer that the face of their 2024 election campaign on a big borrowing pledge will be Ed Miliband. So they'll be heartened by that. But you're absolutely right to say what is really preoccupying Keir Starmer's top people is do we have ministers who will be able to govern competently and effectively in their first 100 days and beyond. And that is what the next reshuffle will be about. And indeed, what will be really interesting, well, interesting for those of us, for for people who listen to this show, is, you know, you have people like Douglas Alexander, former cabinet minister, host of other former ministers trying to come back. On day one of a Labour government, they're likely to get unshowy, unglamorous 
mid-ranking ministerial jobs. Sorry, Douglas, you're not going to be foreign secretary on day one. Yeah. But, you know, there'll be minister, of, yeah, yeah, minister yeah. of state for, I don't know, Corby trouser presses or whatever, <laughs> yeah. uh, which are really important delivery jobs. And, you know... Because that, that, getting stuff done is important. Yeah, totally. Last I, question to you, Matthew. Who's mm. the shadow transport secretary? Oh, absolutely no idea. <laughs> but I think that woman was probably Annalise Dodds. Who, oh, you might who, be right. Yeah, yes, we did go, yeah. yeah. Patrick, Shadow Transport Secretary. Uh, Louise Haig. Very good. <laughs> Lovely to see you both. Patrick Maguire and Matthew Powers, thanks very much for joining us here on Times Radio. Patrick Maguire and Matthew Powerstone. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we revisit my interview with Margaret McDonough. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I mean, I was lucky because I had a brilliant team of people. Jonathan Powell and uh, Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, David Miliband, Angie Hunter, Margaret McDonough, all these sort of people. They were amazing. Uh, they're perfectionists. Angie Hunter, Sally Morgan, David Miliband, Philip Gould, of course, Margaret McDonough, you know, they were an extraordinary group of people. Margaret McDonough, she was just a complete force of her own. And she just whipped that whole machine into shape. She was born New Labour, New Labour incarnate, working-class New Labour. She totally understood, you know, the, the, the fears and concerns of people on the council estate and a total loyalist. Tony was the leader and she would do his bidding. Margaret had somehow persuaded them to allow the whole of Downing Street to be filled with our supporters waving the Union Jump. You know, that was, that's Margaret. As I stand here before number 10 Downing Street, I know <laughs> the huge responsibility that is upon me and the great trust that the British people have placed in me. That was Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson and Angie Hunter remembering the extraordinary role of Margaret McDonough in British politics. Labour's first female general secretary, she was a part of the inner circle who masterminded the 1997 and 2001 landslide victories. After being diagnosed with a brain tumour, she died at the weekend, aged 61. 
Well, back in 2017, to mark two decades since New Labour entered power, I spoke to all the key players in that campaign. So today I wanted to revisit my conversation with Margaret about inventing the pledge card, rowing with John Prescott and taking calls from people shocked to discover they'd actually got themselves elected. She played a crucial role in helping Tony Blair to rewrite Clause 4 in 1995, moving away from the long-standing commitment to widespread nationalisation. And I asked her when the party then moved to an election war footing. I felt that we were on a war footing and in a campaign from the day that Tony Blair stood for leadership of the Labour Party in the summer of 1994. Um, I never felt that the campaign started in the short campaign. So... I think very clearly it was Clause 4 and then building on that was obviously the manifesto, the early manifesto. I don't think it ever stopped. What was it like? I mean, looking back now, there are a lot of big beasts in Mm. that team. There's Gordon Brown and John Prescott and Peter Mandelson and Alistair Campbell. Mm. There are a lot of, if you look back through the memoirs, you've got Claire Short going off in one direction and John Prescott going off. Mm. What was it like from your point of view? Was it like herding cats? How did you deal with all those... Big play. I mean, the party, the way the party was lucky to have so many big players. Mm. But there didn't seem to be a strength is always a weakness. Yes, isn't there didn't it? seem to be a lot of com- yeah, conflict. There was an awful lot of conflict and challenge. I think that you need that if you're going to get something that's brilliant. I don't think it always feels like it if you're in the middle of it. Obviously, for somebody like me, irrespective of their inability. On some some occasions they get on brilliantly, some occasions they don't get on well, everyone has their own agenda. And these are important things. You know, we're not building widgets here. <laughs> we're in it because we believe this stuff. You know, this is this is really important stuff. The Labour Party might not continue to exist. We believe that we can improve our country. We think that we can make lives better for people. You know, these are stuff that is worth fighting for. It's striking how those difficulties didn't sort of spill out into the open until much later, that actually, looking back now, when people look back and remember what happened, it sounds very fractious and you had lots of people sort of jostling or moaning or whatever, but actually that didn't become the hallmark of the Labour campaign. Absolutely. And I also think, though, at that stage you're not running a government, you're not in a different department, you can have big arguments in the same room. Once you're in departments and you're away from one another and then... That's what you get. Yeah, yeah, you get briefing and people misunderstand uh, people. I think that's more difficult. I had, for example, and I don't think he'd disagree um, with this, I had quite a difficult relationship with John Prescott uh, in the early years. You know, our politics is quite different. And um, I remember he was really hacked off with something that I hadn't told him about. I think actually, you know, it was probably Tony Blair's responsibility to tell him, but, you know, he's not going to kick. Uh, metaphorically Tony Blair you know it's kind of easier to have um, a a go at me but to his credit John Prescott ended up one of the most um, supportive people I worked with but this particular day he was really fed up with something not knowing something and he said oh well you I haven't got time now you better come back at five o'clock so I went back at five and he was coming down the stairs with his coat on and he'd obviously forgot (laughs) that he'd agreed to meet me and give me a kicking about something so he said oh, I forgot, um, I've just got to get out of here. Come along with me. And we walked up Whitehall and uh, we started arguing about whatever it was. You know, it was so important, I can't even remember. <laughs> and we walked up Whitehall and uh, we find ourselves in Leicester Square. He's going to the cinema. So he goes, oh, 
do you want to come to the pictures then? And we're outside the Odeon <laughs> queuing and we're still having this row. And I see everyone looking at me. He's quite famous at that time. And I think they probably realise that I'm not Pauline. <laughs> as this row goes on. So he's looking for his money and then I grab it off him and I, I get the tickets and I take charge and I said, come on then. And the film's already started and I can just see these two seats in the middle of this row. And I go, <laughs> in there then. And we climb over these seats and I catch my foot in some you know, cinema goer's bag and I start flying in the air. I fall over him, he falls down and we're now lying over four, four or five uh, uh, cinema goes. And I look up and the credits are coming up of the film and I realise that we're in the wrong dinner. <laughs> and I'm like, do you know what I mean? I'm a young woman and I'm like, oh, come on then. And we sort of, like, everyone's, the lights are coming up and everyone's looking at us and I'm getting him out of the cinema so that we can go into the right cinema and we leave there and I know I've got loads of people waiting back in the office to see see me I never said to anyone I was going off to the cinema with John Prescott anyway <laughs> we come back and we walk back down Whitehall and then we kind of both calm down and he said oh do you fancy going for something to eat and we walk past this kind of pasta place and I kind of walked in and we sat down we started chatting and at that stage I'm only saying now what he's publicly discussed he talked to me and he said how he couldn't have gone into the restaurant on his own you know subsequently know that he had an eating disorder and in many ways was painfully shy I think it's those individual experiences that you have with people when you can kind of find a sort of personal relationship uh, when you're able to talk to somebody about something that's troubling them or a vulnerability that they have. What I know now as a much older woman, you know, I understand these things much more. One of the impressions is it was quite a macho team and it was a lot of jockeying to be alpha males and that sort of thing. Is that your impression of it? Uh, I'd say I was pretty alpha. Um, (laughs) I don't... um, I think we all were really... I mean, you would drown among those group of people if if you hadn't been... Alpha. Do you th- I don't think Tony's alpha. I think of all the people, there are, you know, issues between Gordon and Peter. You know, perhaps maybe Gordon hoped that Peter would have supported him or at least remained neutral and felt he'd been his friend for a long time. So there are all those sorts of things going on in the room. That, There's a lot of history there. The There's people- a lot of history that you probably don't quite appreciate and kind of became unresolved until later on for them. This is Matt Shirley on Times Radio, revisiting my interview with the former Labour General Secretary, Margaret McDonough, about her role in the 1997 campaign, including inventing the famous pledge card. I had gone out and I'd worked on the first Clinton-Gore campaign in California, and it was a marginal state at the moment, and I picked up a pledge card that was on a health plebiscite. They put questions on the uh, ballot and we'd come back and we'd said, you know, how do we get everybody to kind of be on the single message and really communicate this? And our our advertising agency and Peter Hyman, we were talking about it. And I remember taking, I'd kept the pledge card. This was now, I don't know, 96. And I'd been out in America in 92 and I kept it in my wallet. And I I said, you know, we should do... What we said to the politicians was, you know, we need to do this pledge card. It will really help members on the doorstep 
communicate to the voters about what we're here for and what we knew particularly is Labour voters who were less likely to vote, you know, might have had difficult lives, they'd been let down by politicians and politics in their past, their lives were quite tough and they didn't want loads of promises. It was more the sense of, you know, if you if you fix my gate, you know, I believe that you'll be able to go, uh, you know, along and, you know, sort out world peace or whatever it was. I really need to understand that you'll do stuff. So we knew to get people to vote, we had to have a very personal relationships with people. But we also knew that politicians get a bit bored. So they start talking about all sorts of things. <laughs> and so over about a year, we just want them to say the same stuff. So we did this pledge card and we said to the politicians, this is for the party. Be great if you could help the party if you used it as well. But, of course, it was never really about the party. It was always to keep the politicians on message. You, Tony Blair, and John Prescott was brilliant at it. You, Shadow Cabinet, can have this and you can all be saying the same thing and not like there's all sorts of different Labour parties. There is only one Labour party and we were clear what we were going to do and how much it was going to cost. And I, 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 this is goes, goes back to where I started. You know, Tony Blair is very good at this. What he's... Uh, what he sets out for people is very big narrative and the politics and the message because people know if they elect you for four or five years you know there's something that's going to happen two years in that couldn't possibly have been thought through what they want to know Matt what sort of guy are you under pressure you know if this sort of happens what's your kind of reaction going to it be and I think this is where Ed Miliband got himself into a lot of trouble all he wanted was different policy offers you know it was like David Axelrod said, you know, whatever Labour's doing, you're going to get a free microwave yeah. with it. You know, Ed Miliband is very into transactional politics rather than big message politics, which is where Tony Blair is. So when we had policies, we only had symbolic policies. These are the sorts of things that we're going to do to solve some of these problems. But that was absolutely the kind of fun of it. Um, I wanted to ask you about barking cats and meowing dogs. yes. What happened with that? So that John Major had originally said, dogs bark, cats meow, and Labour put up taxes. Yes. And then what did you have to do in response? This was the funniest leaflet and a poem ever produced. And uh, it was written by Matthew Taylor, who's a great writer and incredibly funny. And uh, he wrote this poem about it. And we got staff to dress up as cats and dogs and to follow Conservative ministers around. These sorts of things, I think, maybe are a little bit inside of football for the parties. You know, they're psychological wars. But they also get your team, because otherwise this is sort of 16, 18 hours a day. It gives you a bit of fun. It challenges the opposition. I'm not sure that it makes a huge difference to the public, but... One of the things it did, if, if you think about the territory we're playing in, we are showing that we can run really good public services, but they are not sure that we can run the economy and they're not sure that we will really respect the hard work and the money they earn and not sort of tax them to the hilt. So all the time we want to play in one of our spaces. We either want to play positively or we want to neutralise a weakness. So taxes for us is an area that we want to neutralise. So we would... But instead of running away from it and trying not to talk about it, you just people as cats and dogs and you, it becomes a f- fun thing and it distracts from the... Yeah, well, we want to challenge. Yeah. So how do you challenge the truth that Labour Party is a high-tax 
party is tax and spend, that we don't respect your hard work and we'll just take you, you know, rob you of your money. It has to be that we will never, never, never allow that sort of attack on us to go unanswered. And you have to find lots of creative ways, ways to do it. Of doing exactly. it. And that is one, it's a fun thing to do. It's absolutely rooted in our understanding of the Labour Party's strengths and weaknesses yeah. and what we have to do. Where are you during the campaign? What are you, yes. what are you, what are you doing? The short campaign is really a rerun of everything we've done. We know where our voters are. We've been most, for example, of our key seats and more, we will have spoken to four-fifths of every single resident, you know, 80%. The election campaign is spent reminding them of our conversations with them. And we are doing that on television, in key campaigner meetings, on the doorstep, on phones, in leaflets. It is a reminder of a campaign. It's not a new campaign and it's trying to find innovative uh, ways that we can do this. Obviously, this is all pre... Most of us had pages. You know, we didn't... If we had a mobile phone, it was a huge thing. There wasn't loads and loads of emails, alone something like, you know, Facebook or other forms of social media. So... We were as innovative as it was possible to be in that environment. In Millbank, we have very early morning meetings and, you know, we have three or four meetings together as the day goes on. Obviously, Tony Blair and John Prescott are on the roads in their various vehicles. <laughs> and we Buses and helicopters. Buses and, and helicopters and, yeah. and we're touching base with them yeah. uh, throughout the day. But, you know, at that point, we have a grid and we know, you know, every day where we're going to be, what we're going to be doing, what message we're going to be on. You know, there isn't huge amounts we're changing. We know that um, it would be easy to become stale. So, you know, particularly we know what we're doing in the first 48 hours. We're like, dare I say, I shouldn't really say this, my own football team, AFC Wimbledon. We start off great and occasionally, very occasionally, we lose a little bit of steam and certainly some people thought that had happened in the 92 general election i don't agree we were always behind it was the opinion polls that were sampling wrong but anyway no, there's a there's a there's, there's a familiar a, phrase there, there, <laughs> there is um a big conversation about that but we knew we were going to relaunch in the last five days and we made sure you know there were fresh legs there were fresh people that were just concentrating on the last five days and if, I don't know if you recall this, but, you know, we put purple posters everywhere. We changed all the colours. Then on election day itself, mm. where were you? What, were you, what did you do? Because you're sort of building up Well, I this. broke out. I escaped. My sister had been a councillor since she was 21 and um, she'd fought the constituency where that I first joined and where we lived and where we grew up. I happened to live 500 yards um, in South London from where I was born. So Mitchum and Morden was lost to the Conservatives in 1982 and my sister fought the election in 1987 and she fought it in 1992 and she'd lost both times. So kind of 1997 was her last go at it. We never thought about the result. Tony and others were in the same situation you know I never believed that we could win 92 I kept telling people I got in so many fights but I'm just absolutely it's up to the public it's up to the day so I went round knocking up in Mitchell Morden with my sister Siobhan and 
We were on this estate. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning, Eastfields in Mitcham. Pathways were packed with people coming out of their houses at 11 o'clock in the morning, waving at Siobhan and walking down the roads, polling stations packed. And I said to her, do you know what this means? And she said, what? And I said, we've got a landslide today and you've got a landslide. It was only in that 11 o'clock in the morning on polling day did I ever allow myself to believe. And we knocked up until 10 and I went to the count with her. And obviously we've got this big event at the festival hall. You know, my mum and dad are at the count and I'm going to stay with her till the result is announced. You know, I know there's no issue that she's going to win. And I'm looking at the clock and I think, God, and so they take ages, they take (laughs) hours to count. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, the result finally came in three, half three, maybe later. And I was with my friend uh, Wahid Ali, who'd been knocking up with me and final result we both jumped in the car and went up to the festival hall and I got a call god rest his soul from Robin Cook um, who'd just come down from Edinburgh and he was at the airport and he was in his car and he said you're not at the festival hall are you and I went no I'm just coming from the count in Mitcham and he went oh I'll race you and we kind of literally (laughs) at that time in the morning we had a race to see who was going to get the festival hall first and who, who did? Might have been me. I think it might have <laughs> I been. I think we'll say. People were having a great time. You know, there was lots of music. Festival Hall is a beautiful place to be. But some people were just looking at the television thinking, oh, my God. And, and we went out to the balcony. It's where Tony came in and when he came down from Sedgefield and did his speech. It was everybody's victory. You know, everybody's hopes yeah. and fears for a different country, a more optimistic a country with more opportunities. You know, it was just an amazing moment in time that people generally had been caught up with. And this goes on till about six o'clock in the morning. And Peter said to me, we better go back to Millbank and see who's elected. So a group of us went back to Millbank and we started to field calls. And we had candidates on the end of the phone saying, I didn't expect to get elected (laughs) or... How am I going to tell my wife? Or do you know what I mean? It was sort of, it changed, absolutely changed people's lives. So I said, oh, I better go down to Downing Street to get it ready. While I always said to people, no one is going to party, you know, until the polls are shut at 10 o'clock. I did something a bit naughty and, and that was, I got a coach booked so it could bring activists from my constituency up into Downing Street. And it was your local, from your local Labour Party? Local party, yeah. members that canvassed, you know, yeah, there yeah. might have been members 50 years, small children, anybody that would get on the bus, you yeah. know. And I'd never really thought it through, but I just thought I want them to see it. But of course, when I got to Downing Street, there were absolutely thousands <laughs> of people there. John Major came out with his family and made a fantastic speech And I remember thinking, oh, I've got so much to do. I've got to get these people in. I've got to do this. I wish he would hurry up. I actually slapped myself two minutes into his speech and thought to myself, we will be here one day. This is really, really historic. And absolutely, you have got to be in this moment. After it was all over, I went back to Millbank. Most people had gone home by then. You know, we'd all been up for about... 48 hours. I was about the only person there and I, I, 
you know, I wasn't paid a huge amount at the time. And I remember getting a cab home. And then I get home and this is, you know, these campaigns glamour all the way. I remember looking in my handbag and I couldn't find my keys. (laughs) And I was so exhausted. I just sat down on the step and burst into tears. So that was my recollection of 1997. And that evening, so this was about three or four o'clock in the evening, asked a big group of friends who were Labour Party members around who'd been incredibly supportive to me. And uh, I said, you know, come round at eight o'clock and I'll make you all breakfast, even though it's eight o'clock at night, because I want to re-watch all the results. So somebody had taped it and we sat there and we just re-watched their results. That was uh, Margaret McDonough, the former General Secretary of the Labour Party, who died at the weekend at the age of 61. We revisited an interview I did with her in 2017 to mark 20 years since the new Labour landslide. If you want to listen back to the uh, full interview, uh, there's also interviews with Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair and uh, Alistair Campbell and many more. Just search for Lessons in a Landslide, wherever you get your podcast from. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and catch me live on the radio, uh, three years in counting on Times Radio, on DAB, on your smart speaker or on the Times Radio app. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.